0: Your nose is to the grindstone, day after day. You spend your work hours overworked and underappreciated, only to return home and deal with bills, landlords, and the ever-oppressive shadow of capitalism consuming you and everything you love. The horrors of capitalism are the horrors we all face, and they are confronted head-on in Proliscariat, tales of horror and class warfare. Contained within are 19 tales of capitalism gone wrong. From designer children to deadly bosses, predatory lenders to plague-ridden laborers, stories from the dark imaginations of Haley Piper, Laurel Hightower, Joanna Koch, and many more. You won't want to miss it. Pearl coming International Workers' Day, May 1st.
1: Here at HorrorOasis.com, we are advocates of the horror genre and strive to amplify underrepresented voices in the horror community. This space is for indie artists to promote their work. Please enjoy your stay, and hopefully, it's not
2: your last.
1: Welcome to Deadhead Space, part of Silver Shamrock's HorrorCast, a podcast network that includes Killing Time with Silver Shamrock and Unburying the Dead, where we exhume classic horror paperbacks for a new generation. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Ghana, YouTube, and all other major platforms. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And today we're joined by the author of The Cypher Under the Poppy Trilogy and her latest collection, Velocities. Say hi, Kathy Koja.
3: Hi, everybody.
1: And we would love to know, what got you into horror?
3: That's a really sideways and interesting question. I don't know that... I don't know that I ever thought of any genre as a genre. I've written a lot of different books in a lot of different modes and and genres. And I have seven YA novels that some of the people who are familiar with my horror work have don't know. Um, some of the folks who read my Under the Poppy historical trilogy were very surprised to hear that I had done anything else. So... To me, genre is like a really cool party in a big house. Like there's a big house with a lot of rooms. And, or you're in a club and there's a lot of different theme rooms in the club. And you just kind of go from room to room and have fun with the people that you meet there. And what I have found across the board and what I was was lucky enough to come into the, the horror and, and dark fiction community early on, people were... Remarkably welcoming to an author they had never heard of because you were in that room and you were at that party. And so people were very cool to a new person. And I don't know that I understood at the time how how special that is to be welcomed in as like a, you know, it's just, it's a brand new byline. People don't. I had published short fiction before, but I don't know that how well the horror community knew about that work or cared about it but it was really nice to come in and find all these people with whom i had you know a lot of venn diagram a lot in common and they were ready to hear what i had to say so how how cool is that
1: yeah and i saw i don't know who, um what book it was for but i saw a quote of clive barker having high regards for you with a blurb I, do you, do you recall which book that may be
3: I don't, but I have high regard for him. So that is pretty cool also. Um, He was one of the people, the Books of Blood, I always go back to those as, and some of the stories, like in the hills, the cities, and some of the, the stories that I came upon early were exciting to read because there were no defined boundaries. And it wasn't, It wasn't the kind of work where you felt like, oh, I might have to, you know, pull back on the stick or I might have to think about what to. You can't you can't work effectively. It's like trying to do something with one hand tied behind your back. You know, if you're really worried about what people might think or if you're going to. The only time I ever felt I did not feel constrained, but I felt a different kind of responsibility was writing the YA novels. And I find writing for young people to be a lot more demanding in some ways than for adults because young people don't really want your shit and they will tell you that they don't really have time for your shit. And if you're boring them, they'll tell you that. And, and they'll tell you when you when you make a misstep, too. I, was, I like to tell this story. I was at a school visit for... One of my YA novels, Stray Dog, and it's about a stray dog, not surprisingly. And some of it is told in the dog's point of view of the dog is stealing food from dumpsters and eats the sandwich. And a young girl stood up and said, um, you you talk about the dog is eating a sandwich and seeing the sandwich and the dog sees that it's yellow, but dogs only see in black and white. I know, that's what I said. That was a good sign. Right? She was 100% right. And that had eluded me, it had eluded the first readers, eluded the editor, eluded all of us. But she was 100% right. And so I said, you're 100% right. And I don't know what to tell you. But yeah, that shouldn't, there shouldn't be no yellow mustard in that section. And so you writing for young people, it's not like you're, you're, you're losing anything in in acuity or in, uh, communication, but I really felt an extra responsibility to tell all the truth because there is nothing worse to me. There is no greater sin than in lying to the young. You don't lie to kids ever about anything. You might offer, you might want to know what level of the truth they're asking for like sometimes your two-year-old will ask you something and it seems like an existential question but they're they're operating they want a different level of it's like here's my question i don't need your answer i need the answer to my question and it's true (laughs) he's like you talk a lot of shit and there's food right here right here Look, look,
1: right here. What did you say your cat's name is?
3: His name is Dash.
1: Oh, okay. Any <laughs> particular reason?
3: No, I don't know. We, Whenever we have adopted a cat, it always takes a minute to get to know them a little bit and find out what their name might be. And mm-hmm. his shelter name was Blake, which is not a bad name, but it's not his name. So, so we had to change it. But yeah, you're you are you're always entering into a conversation with any reader, right? No matter what you're writing, no matter what, you're, a story is a conversation. And when I was writing, when I do write for younger people, I'm always aware of that extra extra burden or extra responsibility. It's not a burden, but it is a responsibility. And a couple of times I ran into, more than a couple, I ran into um, some flack or blowback from educational entities because of that. And in one of the books I had, the one of the characters was in a, a moment of high stress and said, fuck. And this was an issue for some places. There were places that I had been invited to talk to the students and then I was disinvited, but then I was invited but then I could only not talk to them in the classroom because I might have, you know, some fuck word or something. But I could, I could talk to them at an assembly, right? And the kids thought this was hilarious, right? The, they, the whole controversy was very funny to them. And one of the kids at the Q&A said, "Miss Koja, Miss Koja, Ms. Koja, why can't you talk to us in our classroom? <laughs> you know why? Well, you tell me Why? Why? <laughs> because they're, you said a word. I said, is it a word that you hear in school ever? And they all laughed. I mean, they're like, yeah, we're a middle school. Oh. school <laughs> are more than anyone, right? Because they're mostly just trying it out. right? Mm-hmm. They're like, you're a fuckity fuck, 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 oh, oh. you know, because it's like, it's a new thing, right? Mm-hmm. And you can really get some people upset if you're going to say these words. And so then we started talking about that instead and said, okay, well, why would that be a wrong word to say in school? If you're telling me you say it in school all the time, maybe not you, but if you all tell me you're saying it, why is that a wrong word? Why can't we say it? And so instead we talked about that, and that was kind of cool. And to kind of take that repressive energy and say, okay, this is something that they're trying to fence you off from hearing, And that, you know, schools, educators are in a hard spot sometimes between administrators and the parents, and they get squeezed. So I, I would never blame a classroom teacher, and I would never put that on a classroom teacher. But sometimes administrators are so worried about parental reaction that they will overreact. And... Now I have never had that happen to me in the horror community. Not one person has ever said, it. <laughs> "That's too much. You've gone too far." So
1: there's very few things: blatant <laughs> racism, blatant hate speeches. That's that should really be the only.
3: Oh yeah, well that's yeah that's <laughs> that's you know what I'm saying. It's oh that, yeah yeah. You know, There's no visible taboo, let's say, but I wonder sometimes too, if, if this genre, like any genres, if there are taboos sometimes that we don't know are there or that we would be surprised, right? If somebody, like, are there lines that we have never seen? And if someone crossed one, would we know?
1: Brennan, I know that you were going to jump in, but I want to pick your brain as well as Kathy's. This goes along the lines of something that Chuck Palahniuk said to us last week, which was basically the horror that the society won't talk about is the next big thing. We were talking about Ira 11* and Rosemary's Baby um, in the beginning of the episode, and basically he was saying how the thing that society and people probably may not, most of us might not even know about right now to discuss uh, is what that next big thing will be in this genre. Brandon, what what are your thoughts on that? Let's jump to Kathy. Uh,
0: I mean, yeah, I I like that parallel, but I also think that uh, just, Kathy, with your work in mind, I mean, that kind of seems like something not just that you've thought about, but something that you'd be looking for, you know, actively looking for what is that that, um, that boundary that we might eventually cross without even realizing it. Um, I wonder if you have any theories on that, like what, even what ballpark it would fall into, whether it would have to do with race, with class, with, uh, identity. I don't know.
3: Class is a big one too. I don't know if class is it, but class is, something that we almost never talk about in the states you just it's there and we all know that it's there but we all are supposed to have bought into this idea that everybody is you know even though you see blatantly around you reflected in so many ways equality is the is what we strive for but we have it almost nowhere uh, except inside our skins we're I mean, that's where we begin, but that that's where it stops. Um, if I had to draw a personal line for things I would find very difficult to write about, and in fact, I had recently had to set aside a book that I was working on, a short novel, um, is cruelty, human cruelty, really. And I don't mean like saw cruelty or like you know stabbing stuff in do you do you know in pan's labyrinth there is the moment where the the colonel guy is interrogating the guy who stutters
1: oh god that nose scene you're gonna bring that up aren't you oh my god
3: that is so disturbing because you know what's going to happen yeah and and even what's going to happen, it's that this guy is taking so much pleasure in just the cruelty to get there. And that is a difficult line for me to cross because I don't, not even not even in the sense of saying, oh, I don't want to glamorize this or I don't want to make this cool. In the sense of having to feel that to be able to convey it, what it's like, especially... Cruelty to the, to the helpless or to the small or to the defenseless, that's a line that I would find hard to cross or to deal with. And I will say that the only fictional regret I have or the only regret I have for any of my work is in the cipher when the mouse goes down the hole. And if I could do it again, I would not do that. I would not do that. And as life has gone on and I've become more aware, uh, and I see that over and over again. We all see it in films when an animal is used as a signifier, like he killed that puppy, you know, he's bad. That for one thing, that's lazy, that's a lazy thing to do, and for another thing, the, the, the death of an innocent creature should not ever be be anything but that. It shouldn't be a signifier. And so, I, if I could, I would go back in and take that mouse out of there. That's... I have no problem with the, the hand. <laughs> I that that is
1: interesting.
3: Wow. But I, I can, yeah, it upsets me. I, I
1: got one comment and then, Brennan, take it away, please. Um, when you brought up Pan's Labyrinth and you said interrogation, I had these, like, waves of chills go up my spine and into my head. Yeah, I remember that scene all too well. <laughs> Pizza.
3: Uh, oh. and, uh, and, and not to get off into film, but an- another line that is crossed a lot. Um, oh, Christ, I can't remember his name. Uh, the director of Funny Games. Um shoot, I don't know. That's what it'll come to me. A movie that is about, and a lot of his work is about cruelty. Michael Hanukkah. Michael Hanukkah. And his work is about straight up cruelty to each other. And that makes it difficult to watch. There's another um film called a Serbian film that is notorious for and that I have not seen and that I, uh,
1: I refuse to watch that as a yeah. as, as a new dad too, like fuck that. I'm
3: not doing that. The the when the film was new, a friend of mine, a director, was at South by Southwest where they were showing it and people just erupted afterwards and you know, they had not even, they had not had a full understanding of what they were going to see. And
2: oh, no.
3: Jesus. And he said, you know, the whole point of doing this was to illustrate, I'm making a political point about cruelty in my country, about political cruelty. And that's what this is about. And I don't regret doing it. And I will never regret doing it. So, but yeah, things like, and you can't, an image like that, you can't unsee. You can't, When something has hit you that hard, it will always be part of you. It will always is going to leave a mark, and you have to be real careful how you do that to people too. You have to have a real good reason. I'm not saying he was wrong. I'm not. He did what he did. He made this thing. He made a piece of art. Okay. Uh, Pan's Labyrinth was Del Toro wrong? No, I think that's the film is a masterpiece. But when I think of it, that is almost the first scene I think of. Is that awful? And that to me is a much harder to say, should a kid watch this movie? I would really hesitate, not because of the fawn or not even because of, you know, eyeball guy, but because of that moment. Not because they should never know that the world is cruel because they'll find out. Mm. But Is that the way you want them to find out? Is there another way that might not leave such a mark?
1: I would ease them in. Yeah, that's that's like throwing a kid in the deep end. That's uh. That's a good point, Brennan. Take yeah, a slow start. that's
0: that's what I was thinking. Is you know the you brought it up because it's that demonstration of cruelty, and you know I remember watching that for the first time and being, of course, shocked by by that. And it was because of how unflinching it was. Up to that point, the movie kind of convinced you that it was the type of movie that would pan away at the last minute, um, and then when it doesn't. It's it's just kind of the next step in in that cruelty. I but I never really felt like it was gratuitous in that you know it was just happening for shock value or it was just mm. happening to earn that R rating or whatever. Um, and I and I think that really you know I, I guess I never really thought of it as a demonstration of you know the next step of cruelty. But that's yeah, I mean. It sounds weird to say I like that line of thought, but it's I'm looking at it at a different angle now. That's interesting.
3: And the the things in the movie that are scary or you know legit disturbing, you never really know if the fawn is good or bad, or you're never even really sure. You could think of the ending in many different ways, but you never feel that same sense of threat from the monsters. Even the eye guy, as you do, even when the eye guy eats the fairies, Yes. Spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen that. Sorry, <laughs> you are like, oh, that's awful. But you know that he's not only is he a monster, but he he knows he's a monster, and everybody knows he's a monster, right? He's just, they're all all the fantastic creatures are inhabiting. They are what they are, and you know what they are, and they know what they are. But the the Colonel Stepfather guy. He's supposed to be like one of the good guys, right? He's supposed to be, and that makes it a thousand times worse. And he has all the power. He has what is worse than, you know, cruelty with power. Usually you see it in the more powerless, right? The people who hurt someone else because they feel like that's how they need to exercise, you know, whatever authority they think they have or they need to demonstrate authority. But when you have when you're holding all the cards and yet you're still, you know, that I would be hard pressed to think of anything too much worse in, in human behavior, because that's where all, that's the wellspring, right? It's that I have power over you and I can, I can do whatever I want. I yeah. what I want.
1: Absolutely. Brendan. I don't want us to move on until we tackle your uh your reply on what Kathy was talking about, about how educators, their bosses, parents, how you oh. broach how you broach subjects such as uh, what she's talking <laughs> about—a simple word like "fuck." Like, let's be real. Well, thank you. Well, know, thanks kids kids well, all hear fr- that.
0: First off, Kat, Kathy, I'm a, I'm a classroom teacher, so that's why Patrick's throwing that at me. Oh, but okay. um, uh so you know, thank you for your kind words.
3: <laughs> but uh, but isn't I mean, is that not?
0: It now generally I work with like I'm at a K to two school right now, so we don't really have many outbreaks of the word fuck. But, um, so I if I have to deal with that, I'm gonna you know message you and let you know how that goes. <laughs> but, you know, my first thought was as soon as you opened up that dialogue, um, of let's talk about why we can't be in the classroom, let's let's talk about, um, you know how we hear that word at school but now it's all of a sudden a big deal i mean middle schoolers are notorious for just you know being too cool and you know maybe maybe shutting out not wanting to engage in conversation but i'll bet that opened them right up and you know that's i i'd be so if, go ahead because
3: they it's so hard to be that to me is the is such a difficult age in that we forget you don't even know what you're gonna look like from one end of a year to the next I mean I have looked like this for a long time that worry is gone for me but you know what I mean you don't even know what is happening to you you don't know what you're gonna look like you're constantly and now it's a thousand times worse because now you're everything you do can be preserved for all time. But Uh, it's so difficult just to get from one end of the day to the other that you have to kind of armor up because who knows, man, that your friends could turn on you. Something could happen. You know, what if, who knows what? And you're ruined forever because when you're 12, you know, you don't have a ton of life to, I mean, if you, even if you look at at a, 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 middle school text uh, Romeo and Juliet gets used a lot and if you think about it that's a terrible thing to to have in, look what they do right look what they're it's the dumbest thing ever there <laughs> poor kids <you> wait <laughs> what happens're <laughs> and this, but this is okay for them right it's like they end up dead and their families are like oh this is horrible but now we're gonna reconcile that's terrible. That should not yeah. be taught. I mean that's uh, eradicate Shakespeare from schools. I think is the takeaway there. No more Shakespeare. More more fucks and less Shakespeare. <laughs> that's a quote of the day. More, <laughs>
1: right. more fucks and less Shakespeare. You should run for a school board on that platform. No, what? <laughs> now, I I want to touch on one more thing on the first Subjects we've kind of dove into, which is YA. I've seen a lot of people have different definitions of it. Of course, you can Google it. But as a YA author, I'd like to know in your words, your opinion, what YA is, what constitutes a story to be YA.
3: I think if I and I could only, you know, talk about my own work. Yeah, of course. it's all all i'm qualified to speak about but the a lot of what all my why novels shared was a sense of becoming or not just growth and then we had growth i mean you have growth all of you keep growing until you die you you have to you're growing until you stop but the conscious sense of Things are changing for me, and I have to make decisions about how am I going to behave? How am I going to think? What am I going to believe in? What do I know is true? And how am I going to understand myself in the light of that? And a part of me knows that I don't have all the information I need. And the same way when you think about books that you read when you were little and those books. That, there is a book right here. I'm afraid to move the stack, so horrible things happen. We'll cut that out later if this whole fucking book comes down. Oh, she uh, said fuck. We'll pretend bitter, right? We'll just pretend that didn't happen. But this, the original copy of Harriet the Spy.
1: Oh, right? man. And I've never seen that cover.
3: I. This is, I, and I just, this book meant the world to me when I was A young person and a young writer because Harriet, for people who might not know the book, Harriet is a spy and she spies on her classmates and on the world and she writes in her notebook the truth of everything she knows and has seen. And then one day people see her notebook and the story is the story is about how do you tell the truth to yourself? And yet, how can you still live in the world if you're going to tell the truth to yourself, and if you're going to be a writer and and write it down for other people, ostensibly, you know, to read one day? This, the way this book affected me when I was young, and the way that ideas affect you when you're young, especially the first time you meet an idea, and we have all seen kids. When they're putting something together for the first time and just that look, right? Like I, I remember giving a talk at a school, an alternative school. Those are my favorite schools. And a lot of times they're in like the worst building or the building that still has like an old boiler and they're like, whatever. I love those schools. <laughs> and I was talking to the students and said, when you... And these were older kids. These were high school kids. But it's like when you say to yourself, hey, wait a minute. I said Be really careful because you have just had an idea that is original to you. And you have just put things together for yourself. Listen to yourself whenever you say that because you have just made a breakthrough of some kind. And that is, that's what YA is. It's, hey, wait a minute. Hey, wait a minute. And you're experiencing yourself as an autonomous person in the world with your own ideas and your own thoughts. Not what your parents think or your friends or anyone, but it's your own thought. And that that's what I try to get at in the YAs that I've done.
1: Uh, that's perfect. And I really ask that because uh, you never know who's listening. There could be a YA author out there or someone that's like, hey, I write YA. So that's why I like to ask those types of questions. Plus, we learned a thing or two there. Um, I laughed when you talked about the bad boiler of the uh, alternative schools, because my dad teaches in... He used to teach in one of the roughest cities in Massachusetts, Brockton, Mass. It's uh, not the nicest place, and now he teaches in a nicer town, but it's always alternative schools, and... one. I don't know how he does it. He brought me into... He brought me in uh when I was still living up uh in mass and uh sitting in class for a day and I was in my young 20s and there were high schoolers and this girl said he he's old and that was the first time in my life in my head I'm like I feel like breaking down really I'm not old I'm 23 you know but uh I bring this all up because kind of the neat thing is um someone that worked with my dad was Mark Goddard he's an uh the actor he was in uh I think, like, one episode of The Rifleman. He was in Lost in Space. He was a kid during the uh, TV show. But uh, weird stuff, because I started looking up Mark Goddard, and he had several ex-wives, and one of them, they found a dead body. And it's just, you know, there's some weird paths that you go down. Like, this is a guy that worked with my dad next to my hometown that was in a super famous show in the 60s that... I, you go down different branches of his, like, great-grandfather invented some fuel for, you know, space shuttles. and
3: Whoa.
1: I'm getting, I'm branching out from you talking about YA, but this is just, like, the path of the internet is a
3: strange one. <laughs> it It's an unknowable path, too. I know, or when you start researching one thing, and then you look up after, like, 20 minutes, and you're somehow on, how did they make the formula for Mike and Ikes, which is, why am I looking at this? Yeah, it was kind of interesting. So I know some of the one thing I'm finding in the, the book that I'm writing right now called Dark Factory, I will do some research on, okay, I want to call The last one was a vodka brand. I want them to be at a party, a launch for a new vodka. And here's the name that I made up, but let me make sure that it's not an actual name. It is real hard to make up a stupid name for vodka. They're (laughs) all taken. They're all taken. I'm like, oh, shit. Oh, no, no. Oh, I can't use that either. No, that's a real one, too. Okay, never mind. Finally, I had to pull something out of my ass and just move on. But it's like, I'm glad that that exists. And yet... Yeah, it's a, and if I had gone on from there, a lot of the, the this book takes place in uh, a club and a dance club and there is so much lore, DJ lore and DJ stories and stories about weird clubs and stories about dance slash sex clubs and for days, you know, I could just sit there for days and do nothing but research and go, wow, that's wow. Didn't see that coming. But yeah, where, where, where were we? I don't know. See, I was talking about the
1: boiler and I laughed and I didn't know if that was appropriate or not. So I felt like explaining it. So I don't seem like a potential dick.
0: No, it's so appropriate. Like that, that school, the alternative school, it's always in the building. Like if, uh, if, uh, School district approaches the uh, town or the city and says, look, we can't, you know, have this elementary school in this building anymore. It's not up to code. It's out of date. And then the town builds a new building. Everybody shifts over and the alternative school is in the building that was, you know, one step away from being condemned. So
3: And it's been true across the board in wealthy districts, anywhere that I have gone. And those are always the schools where I have had... I have never seen a discipline problem. I have never seen anything but a respectful audience. In fact, I went to one school and it was for my book, The Blue Mirror. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they, the teacher said, well, we've read, um, the kids have read the book and we have a list of questions for you. And there must have been 36 questions on this list and some of them were stunning. And this one young woman had said there's a cat in the book and she said was the cat named this because it's it's reminiscent of this egyptian deity and is it and i said no but i'm going to tell people from now on that it was because this is better than what i thought of but they even when the students were not a hundred percent on board with having to sit and listen to someone talk i've never had anything but respectful silence it's like i am It's a completely different vibe. And I have talked in many different schools and in, you know, independent schools, private schools, very expensive schools, schools everywhere. And, yeah, I would go there first. And and sometimes I've had to ask, too, and say, does your district, especially if you're doing, like, a district-wide event, does your district have a, oh, yeah, we could, would you want to, yeah, I would like to step in there. Yeah, I would. You know, it's like, uh, that's where I would be at if I was a student. So, yeah that's the school where I belong and I used to tell I would do a thing it was it was to get their attention I've done this in in other classrooms but to take the book that I had come there to talk about and say you know this book without a reader and then I would throw it across the room and they would go (gasps) oh It's like but it's like without if if someone is not reading that book, it's pointless. It is just a thing. It's you know, reading is what and sometimes to the kids who were who might struggle or reading might be more difficult for them or they didn't uh oh, reading. I would say it doesn't matter if you ever read this book or any book, but you must know how to read because everyone who wants to control you can read. Every single person who's going to tell you what to do can all read. And you Mm. must be able to meet them where they are. Because it it, it would be great if you read all my books and they meant something to you. But that is immaterial. You must know how to read. And hopefully that made some sense. Because it is true.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's another... That's right there. It's another form of cruelty. I don't know too many people that are illiterate, but I don't know how they go through life. Like you can't even read a menu. Can't even, what if you have to sign a contract? You have to trust that person a hundred percent.
3: And one of my uncles uh, was functionally illiterate and we in the extended family never knew it until much, much later in his life. And he got by on memorization and memorize street i mean he can't read street sign right i mean think of
1: oh so my god yeah
3: out, okay i get off at this exit or i turn here or yeah it's this whole panoply of it's exhausting and finally when it and he, you know he was deeply ashamed of it and you know, oh it and when it finally came out and he was able to overcome that what a relief mm. right what Right now I'm using Duolingo to learn German and I'm really bad at it. And it's 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 very great to be, especially as someone who has been using words, you know, for my entire life, (laughs) hopefully using them fairly well, to not be able to even understand sentence structure and really have to struggle, it's great. It just gives you such an appreciation for the, just the way language works and how and I mean I'm at baby level like the dog runs fast. I mean I'm not good at this. okay, <laughs> I am really struggling. but it's we were all we are all there at some point with some language, right? We're all and it's it's a gift. I mean the whole point of any of these books is the gift of that conversation with using language as a way to make a connection or to open something up or to, I go back to conversation a lot because without, I mean, without a reader, a book is inert. And one of the other things that I do is create um, performances, immersive performances where you, everything is about the audience because they're not an audience. They're a collaborator at this point. And I've done shows, and some are you know some are great. Some people were put off, or they were scared, or whatever. Um, I did a a production of Dracula in the basement of an old uh, mercantile building in Detroit, where I live, and the people came in through. It was like it had like the big old windows, you know, the big shop windows, and there was a little glass vestibule, and when people came in. I would hold them in there, and we calculated this to make sure that, you know, and if anybody was really claustrophobic or anything, I would say, if you have a, a problem with this, of course, we, you know, step out. It's an issue. But I held them in there, and people would get more and more kind of antsy because they were in this constructed space. And then I would take them out one by one and just randomly pick people. And the whole point of doing this was... Uh, the tagline of this show was Appetite Must Be Fed. And the uh, poster, I on one handy, it was great. It was of like a fork. And the idea was You are not the top of the food chain anymore. Now you're in this world, and now you're food. So, after mm. I get food. And <laughs> the way people, some people responded intuitively to that, some people would not respond. And, you know, there was always someone at one of the shows who was standing against the wall with their arms folded because they're not playing along with your shit. And, hey, fair enough. I mean, you bought your ticket. You can do whatever you want. But without their participation, it can't happen. The energy was of all these people in this semi-dark room with... And because it's immersive, everything in the room is, is supposed to be there and everything has a purpose. And we had, the table is set with nothing, but on the shelves we had, I had a, uh, I hired a chef, a vegan chef to make, everything was vegan, but we had like this vegan blood sausage and we had these. And all this food was perfectly edible and perfectly safe. And it was a, if anybody ever ate any of it, they would have been fine. No one would touch that food. People would <laughs> look at that food. Okay. And their reactions, what what attracted me to making this kind of work to begin with, is it's exactly like being with a reader when they read your book. But you get to see them and you get to have that immediate feedback. And they would always surprise me always something would happen where you would be like something's good something's not good but that they, they brought their own energy and their own i did a version of alice in wonderland where at one it was in a in a school in a a uh, uh, little person school a parochial school and they like with the little chairs and such and and you could go from room to room and see different things happening and the white rabbit is trying to help you you know go along and see stuff and the one of the characters instead of having Tweedledee and Tweedledum we only had one we had one Tweedle and in our version of it she was her other her twin or her other half was dead and so she was all alone in her little room and she the the performer and I decided she could not leave that room She could only be in her little playroom. And so she decorated it with little lights and she had toys and she would paint people's nails and she had Laffy Taffy to share and people would come in and play with her and everyone had a great time. And at one point in the show, the Red Queen, who had been going through the production randomly slaying people, came for the Tweedle and pulled her out of her little room and Killed her, choked her, choked her out. And when we were developing this, the two performers, we were trying to figure out, okay, she's going to have to be dead for the rest of the show. So we have to put her somewhere. She wanted to be dead on the floor. Said, you can't be dead on the floor because people will step on you. It's dark. That's not safe. So we decided there was this big funky couch that they said we could use. And we said, all right, she'll be killed. Kill her and throw her on the couch. Okay. So she did. They choked out the Tweedle and threw her on the couch. And, and in real life, I will point out, these two are like super best friends. So was, there was that whole thing in it, too. It was just cognitive dissonance. But she chokes her out and throws her on the couch. And then the action moved on somewhere else. And people, to this day, it makes my hair stand up. As people walked past this poor, dead little Tweedle with her big pink wig, it was like watching people walk past a casket. They stopped they put their hand on her. They moved, it was hair raising. And and they all hated the Red Queen after that. And in fact, going back to the idea of cruelty, I had a friend, kind of an ex-friend because they were shocked that I would let something like that happen and said, that character was innocent and friendly. And did nothing to deserve that. And I really question that you would include that in this performance. And the, the Red Queen, you know, she she got the march hair too. I mean, she was super bloodthirsty. But that was a line for this person. That was a line. And the line was that's innocence and friendliness, and you gratuitously murdered her. And I don't like that. So, and you know, fair game. That's
1: Good writing. That's good performance.
3: There, yeah, these are people that I worked with over and over again, and they were absolutely fearless. They would. It isn't. It isn't only about two. Uh, they would do anything. The reason they would do things is that we had that trust already. That I would never ask them to do anything. And they were free to, you know, to object to, I don't want to do that, or I don't, you know, we had strong guidelines and we knew what we would do and what we wouldn't do. But being able to trust the people that you're working with and to trust the audience, too, because there were parts in that performance where when the Red Queen is going after the March Hare, people physically stood between them to stop her. And as a, as a director, then my role has to be, I have to get them out of there because this is choreographed and their presence will make a problem. Somebody could get hurt if, I mean, there was one fairly violent moment where a character gets their head slammed into a little tiny drinking fountain. Obviously, no one slammed into anything, but that's what it looks like, right? And that's what it sounds like. And I can't have people there because that somebody really could get hurt. But I also don't want to break that enclosure that we have all created. This is real and happening right now. So I can't go mm, you can't do that. So I would have to try to get them away and say, you know, you this is not your fight, or you know, whatever, something to keep them in the mood but to get them out of there and because they got very strong at something, they were they weren't they weren't having it were like, we're not, i had enough of this violence and i would have and in fact just the, the most telling and it was a young person too that was a, a we did a a beta night for before the performance started where a local high school their drama class came to observe and you know be part of the performance and at one point when uh we' the in our version the carpenter was God was like the god figure and at one point as the march air is about to be killed one of the students said to the carpenter stop this you can stop this make it stop and she said and this is totally unscripted I mean none of this, And he was dead serious. And she said, it doesn't work that way. Wow. And when the kids left, they were dead silent. And I thought, oh, God, what have we done? (laughs) Have we have we wounded them? And I mean, silent as the grave. High school, nothing. And I went out to the parking lot to make sure that everyone had got their rides home and stuff. And the the drama teacher was still there and she's like, Oh my God, they couldn't shut up. They love this. Man. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. And then when I came again, I'm like, they're okay. They're okay. Everyone's okay. But how profound is that to say yeah. you can stop this and to have her say it doesn't work that way. Oh my God.
1: I, I, I wanted to jump in and say, Brennan, you we're both writers. That's the greatest line you could write, in my opinion, because like everyone, I see stories where people try to explain why if God is real, then they do this for that reason. I don't think as human beings for any religion, we can comp- uh We can digest the reasons of the universe and everything. So that is like the greatest line you could write as a God. That is that's imp- that's impressive and to have
0: it come off the cuff, too. Yeah. And wow.
3: she just a response. And that yeah. was her completely honest response. At yeah. one one of the nights before the march here was killed, he looked at the carpenter and said, Was I good? Was I good? It's like he knows he's gonna die. And so he's asking God, Was I good? Oh my god, right? It's That's like so sad. This shit was deep. We had son and none of this would have worked the same way if you didn't have that audience so close and so involved. None of this could happen. And yeah. that is ideally what you're doing with a book, right? That yeah. that reader is that engaged in what you're doing and is bringing everything they've got to what you've done. And, and when it works, there's... I love that. Yeah,
0: and you know the thought that's been kind of rolling in my head for the last couple minutes was, you know, you mentioned that once the uh, Tweedle was down for the count, that people were walking by, you know, placing a tre- treating, you know, her body like it was awake, um, like they had lost a friend, and I, I think that's such a tangible reaction to the way that we feel if that happens in a story we're reading. But the thing is, the author, the creator, never gets to see that. Um, Whereas, you know, in this sense, you've created uh, an atmosphere where that is the case. So big question. How do you recreate that in your writing where, where you can get that kind of feedback?
3: It's really doing this immersive work. And I started doing this about 10 years ago, the shows and stuff. It has really taught me a lot about engaging people and about making as much room as possible to and giving people, permission is the wrong word, but when I would do a performance, it was important to let people know that there were, especially people who had maybe never um, engaged in an immersive show before, to let them know that it wasn't like you know a stupid free for all. We were all, there were that there were boundaries and that we knew where they were and that they were safe because we knew where they were and we would stop them if we had to or if things were not going to get totally out of hand because it was a story and we were going to stay within that story and be respectful of it and respectful of each other and not good but i had never had any kind of problem with anybody at any of my performances and because everyone was respecting that space but it is about making that's what i'm trying to do right now with dark factory um it's the the story as i said is set in a in a club and a lot of it is about the nature of what we believe is real or what 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 reality contains and are we seeing or experiencing everything that's really there. And the, the touchstone for this came, came for me. I was, you know, those days where you just, you just can't. Anymore? <laughs> All too well. <laughs> I was walking. I took a walk because I just couldn't anymore. And this was a couple years ago. And I'm walking down a street in my neighborhood and I'm just pissed off. It's like, nobody even cares. You whooping, nobody even cares. Nobody cares about anything, anything nothing. Nobody even says thank you. Nobody even notices what you do or says thank you. Nobody even says thank you. And there is a little piece of paper on the sidewalk. And I picked up the little piece of paper and it said, Thank you very much. And I dropped the paper. <laughs> I turned around and I went home, and I went back to work. That is a true story, I have no explanation for that story. That is the thing that happened to me two blocks away from this house. And that made me think, what, not even what circumstances could have collaborated to have this little piece of paper on the sidewalk when I was walking by and I could have just as easily walked over it, right? I was in a bitch mood. I was walking fast. But what, what collaborative circumstances came together that this was my thought and that was the response of the visible world? And what if we are living in this world all the time, but we haven't quite opened up to it yet? And if those things are happening all around us, then what might that be like? And that's the idea behind dark factory and the method of engagement is I'm trying to create so much space not only in in the in the narrative and I don't like to use narrative because it sounds so boring in the narrative in my narrative what I'm trying to get across I mean it just sounds awful but in the whole, and there's I mean, there will be a book, there will be an ebook, there will be an audio book, there will be a site where people will be encouraged to collaborate with me on this. And that's the very long answer. Of that's how I'm trying to make as much space as possible for as much engagement as people want to offer. Because, too, I have seen in shows, sometimes people the person who is just standing in the corner watching, that might be the way that they are most engaged. And if you try to force them to do stuff, that's wrong. That's not how I've been at those kind of shows where it's like, no, we're all going to, no, we're not, you know, we don't all, why would we all experience this? This We don't all experience life the same way. So why would you expect anybody? I want them to get as much as they can out of it, but the way they do that is up to them. So that's why this book will be out next year from Meerkat. And your mm. Trisha Reeks and I are talking about all the different ways to make this feel as real as an immersive experience as we possibly can.
1: That is I want to touch on two things, if that's all right, Brennan. Um, first is as far as forcing people to do this or that. That's interesting. They, You talk about that. Just today, my wife and I were talking. She's a social worker. She's educating me on, on a lot of different from neurodiversity to uh, just how to approach life, I guess, in general. But that is a whole nother discussion. So as far as neurodiversity goes, we we're just talking about today how it sucks that not everyone can be accepting of someone that whether it be autism or a it, it, like me with ADD or whomever else, uh, there's so many things to list off that uh, it sucks that if you're not this way, a lot of people try to force you into a, a, a round hole if you're a square peg, you know? Um, the other thing, like, I'm struggling to think about what it was, because I'm getting lost in my other thoughts. So, Brandon, why don't you take over uh, for now, sir? Um,
0: I was kind of curious what can you tell us about the the website? I don't know if you're if you're able to share anything about that yet, but what kind of interaction can people expect?
3: We are, and I'm not being coy, we are still developing the best ways. And a lot of this is back-end stuff that just literally how are how will it be possible for people to engage? Like how can they upload stuff? What is the best way to help people to be able to engage. Um, One of the reasons that we decided to do it that way, too, is that when the cipher came out from Meerkat, the reissue, we did a fan art contest and said, you know, here, submit your fan art, okay, and we had no idea or no expectation of what people would do, and the entries were really stunning, and they were different mediums there was 3d stuff there was we were just blown away by what people came back with it was and i had to judge the contest because i opened my big yap and said i'll be judged and i'm like this is because i said i'll do it with you i'm like no that's okay i'll do it so oh, it was yeah it was really it was hard i mean that's a cliche they're all winners but it's like i could have picked it was super hard And that made us think here, look what people, look at the response that people had and that they wanted to share. Why can't we have, maybe we can have like a permanent gallery of things that people share, or maybe people will want to share music because this is set in a dance club. Maybe they'll be inspired in music. Maybe people will want to make video. Maybe they, you know, sky is literally the limit. And if that's the central idea, You could almost do anything and so to make as much space as possible so that ideally that it will be you know people sharing with each other as much as saying you know this is a book but this is a starting place too for you to think about shit and what do you think about it what at one of the shows that i did um it was a version of weathering heights which is probably my favorite book in the world and that nah, is my favorite book in the world. I have like hundred copies of it. It's probably my favorite book. I have like seventeen copies of it. But we we asked the the question. There was um, of the characters in the story. The one person who's like really the moral center of the story, Nellie, the who is the narrator to us. Um, and that was I read that first read that book when I was ten years old, and when. I realized at a certain point Nellie could be lying. <laughs> oh God. It's like your mind is blown. You're like, oh, wait a minute, she's telling us a story, but wait, she said this here, but now she's oh my God, what if she's lying? And so she's like supposed to be the moral center of the story, but she's very, you know, compromised. And Heathcliff and Kathy are like the, you know, you think of them as oh, they're the tormented, you know, Lovers and blah, blah, blah. The only the worst thing that happens in that story is that somebody chooses to live in a not in a way that's not authentic to her. It's like Kathy says, I'm going to marry the rich guy and that's a disaster and everybody ends up dead. Okay. so if the moral person who's been pushing her to do this, should you be doing the right thing or should you be doing the good thing? And on the wall, this we did this show in a gallery and we had written, the performers had taken parts of the book and written it all over the walls and the floor and stuff. And at one, one of the walls right by the door, I wanted people to write, should you do the right thing or the good thing? I mean, even if you just want to make a mark on the wall, which one should, what is better to do? And I couldn't think of a way to make the paint available to people So we had it in like this little container and we kind of offered it to the first person after the performance was over. And that was another moment where people just really took over and it was almost like a church thing. Like they would use their finger and write on the wall and write what they had to say and then give the bowl to the next person and then take the rag. And it was a very... And the things that people wrote were so deep. And one one was, why do we have to choose? Why do we always have to choose? I mean, people wrote this. It killed me to have to paint over that when we left. But it's like, all this engagement is out there waiting. And people want to engage with work that they really like. I do. You know, I mean, after I've read something or after I've watched something, I go and look. What are Oh, is there, you know, is there, are people, where are people talking about it? Where are their reviews? Where are their, you know, is there Reddit? It's, you want to engage and we can do that now and we can, we can do it with anybody anywhere. So why not make that available so we can do it? Plus, it's fun.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You just reminded me of that last thing that you were talking about, um, where you're talking about how there's another level. Of play in life, I'm wondering if you're meaning quite literally different dimensions that the brain, the human brain, can't process. Where call it whatever you want, gods or other beings or whatever. I, I don't know what the right terminology would be, but is that kind of what you were getting at?
3: I think it could be. I think that we the difference when you first have a, a big life experience right you fall in love or you find something that means a great deal to you or you go somewhere that changes you it does feel like you have leveled up it's like wow okay now I have this other dimension in my life that I had no idea was there mm. and I why we couldn't keep doing that or keep expanding outward I don't think it's easier not to and it is scary. I mean, what if it is a bad experience, right? I mean, what if you say, "I'm in," and then you're like, "Ooh, that was really bad," and now I'm fucked over, and I can't think straight anymore, whatever. I don't think that. I think the name that is used for that sometimes. I mean, the idea of the numinous, the thing—it's like it's spiritual, but it's not religious in any way. It has nothing to do with being religious. It has to do with. Yeah, that feeling that there is, there's more that there's more that could be available to us, but we're not for whatever reason we haven't accessed it yet. And I don't know why that couldn't be neurologically based.
1: Yeah, I don't either. I would think that would have to be, um, Brian. What are your thoughts?
0: I mean, I think there's so you know the 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 first word that comes into mind with kind of where where you left that Kathy was Nirvana. Um I, I, there's so many kind of approaches to that from different cultures I, I, yeah you're right i don't see why it, there couldn't why it couldn't be neurologically based um why it would have to be only accessible through you know one kind of certain variation i guess um right. It, it, right. like i said it's just it's it's an idea I'm sorry, go ahead.
3: You can only feel this in this way and also see this way. Right, it doesn't make sense.
0: And it's also so culturally pervasive, you know, going back to the, you know, even when the world was a whole lot more separate and all these cultures thousands upon thousands of miles from each other that had either no or very very limited interaction kind of had ideas um regarding that you'd think there would have to be multiple ways because we're not all going to arrive at the you know the same destination and by the same means
3: and and you see too you see the opposite happen where there are the same idea expressed differently in all different cultures like the the idea of the beginning of everything as a seed of chaos or the beginning of everything as darkness right and from that what grows and what flowers and what comes into being and that's in culture after culture after culture and it's it's like okay this is clearly an idea that we're all having but we're having it in different ways and we're calling it different things and we wear different clothes when we talk about it or whatever but it's the same idea and so when you're having the same idea that has to have some kind of resonance for us as human people it's It means something to us.
1: I'm thinking out loud. I don't know how you guys are going to take this, but I'm curious what maybe not all, but some animals that there's, we can't be the only species on this planet or plants. Plants are living things. What they think of it. Life doesn't matter after so on and so forth. I mean, think of trees there. Some of them are hundreds of years old.
3: I'm reading this right now and I, Highly recommend it. It's called Underland. And it's about... This guy goes to all different places underground in the world. Um, the Paris Catacombs. then um, Into underground rivers. Goes into just anything that's underneath. He is going into and writes about it. he's a really good writer. It's a really good book. But I came to him through another guy who writes about mushrooms and how I had no idea that mushrooms are not, they're not really plants and they're not animals. They're their own thing and they're completely connected. And then when you look at trees and you find out, oh, trees are actually talking to each other through their roots. All the trees in a forest area can be in communication with each other.
2: Mm -hmm. So
3: what even are they saying? I mean, they're having some kind of language, right? Yeah. Right. See my cat looking up my cat hates all other cats. So when I see him <laughs> looking out the window, he hates them. They're all gonna kill him. I don't know if you knew this, but they're all out to kill him particularly. I read his tweet a- earlier. He's just yeah, he's got issues. But he will have these silent dialogues with other cats, right? I only understand them because I have looked up the body language and whatever, but they're having a conversation. It doesn't have jack to do with me but they are definitely communicating and trees are communicating. And even he even talks about in this book about the ice when he's out on a glacier about the ice communicating. And it feels as if there's not, maybe not a language the way we would think of it, but there is this mode of communication between everything. And it makes no sense that we would be the only things like you say, to talk or to have, we're not all that. I mean, we're part of stuff, but we're uh, yeah, no.
1: Yeah, a few hundred years ago, we thought that Earth was the center of the universe, not the mm-hmm. not not this one system of planets and what whatnot, but right. the whole thing. Not even the galaxy. Where the Milky Way is like, look at other galaxies compared to the Milky Way. We're we're not even a, a midget. We're we're barely a microscopic thing i know it's
3: insane, doesn't it it's like we're so small
1: we don't matter
3: we're just we're just this tiny little thing tiny little thing and then and to to kind of that to me has always seemed like whistling in the dark right it's like we are the best we are the superior species we invented gods and gods care about what we do and we are the best it's like I would call that whistling past the graveyard if you have ever really looked out and use a telescope sometime. <laughs> you don't matter. We don't matter. We matter to each other and we matter, you know, to whatever good that we can create. But yeah, in the big scheme of things, <laughs> Yeah. Take a seat. It just doesn't matter.
1: You know, I, 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 I Sorry, Brennan. I was gonna say I think that all secrets are, they're always under your nose. I think it's all around us, and I love that you were talking about the trees, talking with each other, because uh, there are books on it that you can read. It's cool. I don't know the name, the one I was thinking of in particular, but I read this one little thing, and I wish I delved into it more before we, we talked. I didn't know we'd go in this direction, but uh, it said that if this one tree in a network of a forest is... Black in water for one reason or another the others will take their supply and help that one Um just because it's funny like you know you hear from a lot of people that we're the only species that have stories I've heard that like that's that can't be true like Native American a lot of Native Americans there they were just neural uh, people that had their stories being told from generation to generation why aren't trees who's to say trees or apes or so forth aren't like that um I think we're the stupid ones, honestly. Just because we can't define it or understand it, doesn't mean it's not happening.
3: Right, and if it doesn't have resonance to us, then somehow it doesn't have value. It's like, <laughs> oh, well, it's not. Someone had posted a picture earlier today of in my feed of a. a they work in a in a food place and. A goose is trying to build a nest out of, like, the trash and stuff by the dumpster. It's so sad. And people are like, that dumb goose. (sighs) (sighs) This goose is trying to live and trying to make... This is what we've left for her to try to make her nest for her babies, right? A bunch of fast food crap, right? It's not that... It's not that goose. It's it's us. It's a number one, she shouldn't have to have babies next to a dumpster. And number two, that's on us. Mm-hmm. What do you want her to do, right? Go to nests are us and buy nesting material? Jesus Christ. I mean have some responsibility if you're gonna wreck the whole world, at least own up to it. Good
2: grief. Yeah, yeah that agree.
3: was And that, I mean, that takes us back to the idea of the the innocent. I mean, these animals are just trying to exist in this world that we have basically moved in and taken over, right? It's like, we're the, here we are. I'm going to put a dumpster over here. I know that you used to mess there, but I don't really care.
1: Yeah. Brennan, uh, I got one more thing, if it's okay. Yeah, go for it. On the subject of animals, and I'm not trying to sound like I'm being all, like, snooty or whatever, but... I got a, me and my wife got a pet mini pig for almost four years ago. She's so fucking smart that I stopped. I eat seafood still. I can't help it. I'm a New England boy, so I I eat seafood still. But beyond that, I don't eat meat. I can't, I can't look at cows the same, chickens, none of that. I mean, I probably sound like a hypocrite where like I still eat meat, but I don't. It it just, I, that's where I draw the line, especially with pigs. They are so smart. It's insane.
3: Hard. And they're so, no, I I yeah. I stopped eating anybody long, long time ago. And Very
1: emotional. It,
3: it is. And once you make, that is a line. Once you cross that line, you're like, okay, wait a minute. Why am I, why will I do anything for this cat in my house and, you know, stop what I'm doing to tend to his needs or give him what he wants or make sure he has everything. But then I'm going to do this other thing to this other animal why and it it has become exponentially worse in the way that the animals are treated in the you know in factory farms it's unbelievable mm. and that's cruelty too that and that's unnecessary cruelty it's just to make money it doesn't it's have any with anything mm. but making money and processing as many dead animals as you can and right once you make that connection you're like what is your mini pig's name?
1: It's Greta. I, I named I, I named my pets after musicians or bands. Uh, hers is. Oh, her her name is after not Detroit, but Michigan. I forget what town, but Greta Van Fleet. Um, yes. I think they kick ass. My favorite band's Led Zeppelin. And I thought that it was some stuff that Jimmy uh, Page leaked was like, hey, guess what? We got more stuff, but it's just a bunch of kids in their late teens that kick major ass. So I'm like, i on, going name my pig after them. <laughs> and then I got a chinchilla named Chester, named after I love Lincoln Park, so it's named after Chester Bennington. That's but- so
3: cool. I know, and you know, then once you know them and you understand their personalities, yeah, you can never look at them the same way again. You can never say well, this one is okay, but that one is, yeah, I don't care what happens to that one. It's like, no, I, I have to care about all of
1: them. And I don't get in, I don't get in, like, I work with mostly guys, and, I mean, I don't have to say any more than that. You, you, anyone could expect how that environment is, and they're nice guys and stuff, But um, and not just there, but, I mean, I, I don't care if someone eats meat, but it's just some people, it's like they have to go out of their way to be dicks about it. It's very strange. Oh, yeah.
3: No, and I, yeah, and I don't unfriend people, but I have done it a couple times just because of that. It's like, don't needle me, okay? Don't needle me. Or if you're going to needle me, then have the courage to keep going. You know, don't just kind of hit and run. And if you're going to do this, then come at me and then we'll have a discussion. But yeah, no, I, I don't. I don't preach at people because I don't think it works. Mm. And I don't think what, what made me stop was seeing a cow, a picture of a cow in distress. And I remember looking at this and the caption was tears aren't enough. Do more go vegetarian. And I thought fucking a, all right, you're right. I'm stop now I'll just stop. And so that i mean i know people don't like to see those images on the socials and i understand i don't want to see them either if you did want to see them wouldn't something be wrong with you i mean who would want to see that right but we don't want to look at it because we don't want to think that people are doing cruelty for us because we won't it's not like saying well i'm going to get my sledgehammer and go out and get a steak i'm going to go kill that cow over there and i'm going to stake out tonight but if you're paying somebody to do it for you, you're still complicit. We don't want to be complicit in that. But you also don't want... The same way you don't want to see people sometimes when you've been a dick to them. You feel bad when you, it reminds you that you're a dick and you don't want to... Not that you guys are a dick, but you know what I'm saying. It's like when you know that you've done wrong to someone, it's hard to face them sometimes. And it takes an effort to face them. Because you're like, I know I was wrong. And it doesn't feel good. But... In this, Actually, in this room, you guys can't see this. This room has a lot of props for my show. And there's a giant cow head there. There's <laughs> a giant horse. These half horse and half man. <laughs> so there are a lot of animals in this room.
1: I would want to be in Kathy Coge's office just to check out all the shit that you got.
3: <laughs> there's a lot of puppets and stuff in here. One of the shows that I did was based on um, my trilogy, Under the Poppy. And it takes mm-hmm. place at the Victorian Whorehouse. And so... There was a a house in an old Victorian mansion in Detroit. The man had just bought it and was refurbishing it. It had never been empty, but the lady who owned it just before him had, like, carved it up into apartments and, you know, kind of changed some of the original stuff. And he was restoring it all back to the way it was, so it was super cool but it was still in a state of being kind of half torn up and half not so when we used it it looked the story is supposed to be set in this kind of dicey brothel in wartime and so the place did look kind of torn up in places and stuff and one of the one of the great moments from the show was another one of those moments of engagement <clears throat> it's a three-story house and so you could follow the follow the actors around while they were doing their thing and have that narrative. Or you could walk around yourself and look at stuff. So at one point I was standing on the second floor and we called it the floozy room because all like all the, the brothel workers, their, like their room was upstairs. And the action was moving from there to down the stairs but not all the characters had come down. And the main characters came down and then all the people came down. And I was standing on the stairs, and I saw this woman. She was coming down the stairs. And she looked, and she heard a noise from upstairs. And she looked down, and she heard the noise, and she decided for herself, I want to go upstairs and see what's going on. And she ran up the stairs to see what was happening up there. And I thought, that was my first big show. And I was like, oh, my heart. (laughs) This is what I wanted to see. This is how I know that it works. And... In fact, there was another moment. That just indulge me, because this is a story that I love to tell. It was Keep talking. A, we it love it. The same show, and one of the characters, the bad guy in the show, is in love with the man who owns the brothel, and who is in love with somebody else with this guy who came back to town, and you know, hijinks are ensuing. And so they're having a show here, and the bad guy knows that this guy that he is sweet on is sweet on this other guy and he's like really hacked off about it. So he calls one of the brothel workers, this young man, and makes him go upstairs. Okay. And we're all downstairs on the main floor. And then you start hearing sounds from up there. Like someone's getting hurt. And the characters are all like looking at each other. And the people are like what she and they're looking to those like to for a clue like you would right like shouldn't somebody do something about that what should we do and every night there would be one or two very few never more than two someone would go up the stairs to see and one night it was a person that I actually know in real life and she went up the stairs and the two performers were They were supposed to get louder and louder and then, like, stop abruptly. Okay. And they never knew what was happening on the other side of the door. So she goes up the stairs to this room, and the bad guy comes out, and he slams open the door, and he has a stick pin, and he takes a hanky out and cleans it off and throws the hanky at her and walks away. And she looks and in the room is the is the young guy who's just been brutalized. And she picks up the hanky and goes to him and he says, thank you. I'm like, oh, this is so great, this is so great. And then he went downstairs and she went downstairs and I went downstairs. None of us said anything. It was like, it was this perfect moment where, and nobody saw it but us, right? Nobody saw it. Nobody was privy to it, just us. And it could never have happened. It seemed inevitable, like it could never have happened any other way. But yet, there could have been nobody there. They could have finished, you know, making their horrible noise and go, all right, all right, let's go. But that's how it happened. And we all picked up each other's cues. And it it was brilliant. It was brilliant. And it that kind of stuff, that's... That is available to us in daily life, too. I mean, those kinds of cues and stuff are happening all the time. And and literally everybody has a story like that. Everyone has a story.
1: Do you have cameras set up where you guys get to record all that?
3: No, because there's no way. You could have the footage, but if you started cutting it together, then you're telling people where to look. And that's not um. possible. Right? then it it kind of defeats the purpose I know we thought is there a way to do this and there never was then it's just a film you know mm-hmm. that I mean it's a good film but it's it would never be the same and mm. you have you have to be there you have to be because it's I mean that's the whole part we have to be part of it mm-hmm. make anything work if you're reading a book and you're not invested in it, that's Why I stopped reading books when I don't like them. I used to try to like plow through. I'm not even really there, so what's the point, mm-hmm. right? Why am I reading this if I'm not really there, or worse yet, if I actively dislike it? You know, man, don't hate reading, that's bad. No, man, yeah. Don't hate reading.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know reviewers that do that, and um, I stopped doing that. It's not fun, I'm not even getting paid. <laughs>
3: yeah, I mean, no, and it isn't fun, and it isn't. Yeah, it's awful. It's like you're giving your energy to something
0: you don't even like. <laughs> yeah, Brendan, I was just, you know, when when you were telling about, uh, you know that how that story could have gone in so many directions, but the direction it took was perfect. I for for some reason, like the the term that just kind of pops into my head is just like storytelling as a team sport. Um, it's, I've just never thought of it in that manner. It's so interesting. Uh, you know, as a, as a writer, I think of it as this like isolated activity, even when, you know, if I'm collaborating with somebody, it's, I do my part, you do yours. You know, maybe we text a little bit and we talk about what we're going to do next, but it's still, there's still such a sense of isolation there to turn it into a team sport. That's, that's wild. I've just, I've never really thought of immersion working in that way.
3: And it takes a lot of trust too, because it is a collaboration and it doesn't work all the time. And sometimes, or sometimes people that you think you can work with, you find out you can't, you're just, you know, I imagine it must be like being in a band. You know, you think you can, you're going to vibe with someone and then you don't. And it just, it's not there. One of the things we used to say at rehearsals always was if we stop having fun then and I have always thought this about my work if I'm not having fun with it something's wrong I mean it's gone off the rails or it's something's not right and we would stop and say well let's go back to when when did we start getting boring or when did things start feeling wrong or because then it's not you're not in that whatever the vibe is you're not in the zone you're not you don't have flow or whatever it's called you don't it's not working in any piece of fiction too. any one of us have felt that right you're trying to write something and it's like yeah <laughs> 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 get rid of that yeah there are books in that closet there that never got born because they could never either the material I wasn't good enough to handle it or something was wrong and they and I used to try to force it because I'm and then you're like, you're not going to force anything. You're going to sit there and sweat. <laughs> just give it up. It'll, it'll come back, maybe, or maybe not. Maybe you never can do
0: that. I'd imagine yeah. like forcing a book would be a lot like forcing yourself to read a book that you're not into. You're just, it's going to be a slog, and you're going to get to the end and say, well, that was shit. Um, <laughs> you're right.
3: Never get back. And right, and for nothing. And who else is going to enjoy it either? Yeah. Yep. If yeah. you don't like what you're working on, who the hell else is going to like it or enjoy it?
1: Now, I'm sure you've talked about the Cypher to death, but and maybe you've talked about this and I missed it. But I am interested about the genesis of the Cypher, specifically on how you got it's. You got to published with Dell. Right. Isn't that correct? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um I'm curious how you got hooked up with them. If, uh, and if it, please feel free to like give a synopsis for potential readers. But I'm curious about the side of the behind the scenes. Uh, how it got started? Was there an agent involved? I know you, your first novel I was published. How you felt, and pretty much how the reception was. Anything you want to talk about or more, please feel free.
3: It was, um, It started out as something completely different. It started out as a continuation of a short story that I had written, excuse me, called Distances, and that was super well received, and it was in some years' best collections and stuff, and it did well. So my agent at the time said, maybe there is more there. Maybe you would like to expand that or, you know, take a look at it. And I started working on it, and that was something that I was not able to make work. It's like, mm, this, there's something wrong here. This isn't working. So there was one character in there that I had some resonance with, and that ended up being Nicholas, who's the main character of the cipher. And once I had Nicholas, then things went very quickly. Then I knew that there was someone called Nakoda who was involved with him in some fashion, and then there was the fun hole and we were off to the races. So once I was able to clear away the thing that wasn't going to happen, I could start working on the thing that did. And I finished the book and I gave it to Russell Galen, who was my agent at the time. And his, he had a, a memorable comment. He said, Kathy, if you have balls enough to write this, I have balls enough to sell it. That's awesome. Isn't it great? And he, Jean um, cavellas was creating the abyss line for Dell at the time and was really serious about looking for things that were different and mm. were a way to take horror fiction in a direction that she felt and she was right. It, it needed to go and there needed to be room for that kind of fiction. And you know, their, their promo material talked about, you know, we've had enough of the plots that we all know and, Let's see some things that we don't know. Mm -hmm. And so Russell was able to place the book with her. And for someone, you know, like we talked about at the beginning, someone coming into a genre, it was fantastic to be able to be welcomed into this arena. You know, with this, you know, there were so many great writers involved with that line. Um, Billy Martin was part of it. Brian Hodge was part of it. Nancy Holder was part of it. Melanie Tom. I mean, there were so many good writers. And to be able to be part of that experiment, and Jean Cavallis worked really hard to make that happen and to really be a line that you could feel like even if you didn't know the writer, like that was my first novel, even if, and it was also the the inaugural title in the line too. So she really... Clearly believed in the book and clearly believed in it as you know a, a, the flagship for the line, and which took a lot of courage. On
2: yeah, the, an
3: editor. I mean, that is not the usual thing to do. So I I respect her a lot for that. You I didn't understand as much as I do now about that conversation with readers. So I didn't know what to expect. And it did get a lot of, it got a lot of really good reviews, but it got a lot of attention for the line too, which was really what I believe what Jean wanted was to say, here's something that's different and we want to do different things. So this is why we're we're choosing this to be the, the first book in the line. And it was great to have people reading something Paying that much attention to a new novelist and a new novel. I was just delighted. I thought and it, it, uh, it shared a Stoker with um, Melanie Town, So that was pretty cool too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Happy about that. Yeah. So, yeah. It was, it was a really, I didn't have anything to compare it to then. So I don't know if I understood how kind of charmed the experience was. I I did not. I didn't know this was my first novel. So, but it was a really great way to come into publishing and I'm seeing a lot of stuff in the indie presses now that make me think of writers like that, writers that I, you know, broke in with and people who are doing really interesting things it isn't only indie press a book that I recommend all the time that I love to pieces is um Maurice Myers the seventh mansion which was on the Stoker preliminary ballot but yeah I, I love Maurice's work and her voice is not like anybody else's and I think books like that can help us expand the idea of what what can fit in a genre or, you know, and that's what the, the whole Delibus thing too. is like, we're going to expand, not in a, in a way saying we're going to expand this genre, but it's like, it can be a lot of things. We don't have to only call it one thing. It can be anything it wants. If readers will accept it, why not? Why not give people the opportunity to find, find their own darkness in these different kinds of books and these different kinds of experiences?
1: This episode's interesting. There, We followed one theme, uh, which... I, the way I'm registering this in real time is the theme of tonight is uh, cruelty and understanding. Well, I guess that'd be two themes. Or if you want to mix it up. But uh, going along with what you were just saying, the um, elasticity of the genre, yeah, it's horror. That's just an emotion. It's, it's more than just like uh, Books. Sh- uh, these shells are what horror is. It's just a few examples. Yeah, that's that's great. Do you mind plugging a few uh, authors in the indie side of things that are speaking to you along those lines?
3: I just finished reading Lindsay Lerman's I'm From Nowhere, and I thought that was just brilliant. I love her voice, and I always read I will read anything if the voice is strong enough. Um, if it's, it doesn't matter to me what genre it is. I'll, I will read anything anywhere because the voice is how I make a connection and how I can be pulled into something. And I mean, even you know, Underland. I'm not, I'm not a fan of the underground, but I am a fan of this guy's writing, and I want to to read what to read the way he writes and the way he communicates. I have receptors for that. I think sometimes too as as readers, we forget or we maybe we don't honor is that the word that I want, but maybe we don't respect our own receptors enough because everybody's had that experience where someone is giving you a book and going, like, oh my God, you will love this. You should read it. And you start reading it, and it's, you're like, ooh, it's, boy, this is not for me. And then you start doubting yourself and thinking, well, everyone like, You know what I mean? It's like, everyone likes this. Why don't I like this? or what, But things can be good, and you can just have no receptors for them, too. I mean, I have no receptors for opera. I have been to the opera. I don't like it. It doesn't – I'm glad it exists, but it doesn't exist for me. I don't have those receptors, so I will never – I'm never going to be able to get anything out of it. Um, I feel that way about a lot of things. I mean, even things like different sports. It's like I will never watch golf. I, there is not a golf game that can exist that I'll watch hockey, but I watch no golf. I mean,
1: what about Happy Gilmore? <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's got hockey in it too, Kathy. <laughs> But you know what I'm saying? It's like... Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I'm only kidding.
3: Well, things objectively are good. Yeah. But you're like they're they're just not for me. I'm never going to like them. And sometimes I feel bad if I can't buy into somebody's work in that way that I can't. But I know that I'm not going to... At this late date, if I don't have the receptors for something, I'm never going to have it. So there's there's no point. Um, I like Maurice's work an awful lot. I'm a huge fan of hers. Um, another book of hers which came out before Seventh Mansion, is Heartbreaker. It's a, a short story collection. I, she and I recently did a thing with University of Pittsburgh where we each read, um, we did a Zoom thing where we each read each other's work, but we didn't know what the other person was going to read. So she read a passage from Strange Angels, which was a book of mine that was very important to her. And I read a story of hers that's in this book called Whole Life Ahead. And I thought I had a bookmark, but I don't. But the the theme of that um, thing that we did for Pitt was talking about women in horror. And where's, you know, how do you define that? Or where's that line? Or where's, you know, whatever. And Yeah, I read this because it was the most, to me, it was one of the most perfect illustrations of, it's called Whole Life Ahead. And it's this young woman who is dead and she has come back to life with this, this guy has like somehow helped her come back to life and it's all about how he... The whole story is about the constant violence against women, constant violence. And nothing happens in the story, nothing violent happens, nothing bad happens, but it's shocking to read and it starts out, I'm so cold, she says, the first thing, her voice small and far away. And he doesn't know if she is saying it to him or if it is something she has been saying for a long time before he got here. It's me, he tells her, and puts his hands on her arms. When she moves, dirt falls on her shoulders, skips down her dress. Her back is only bones, skin shrunk against them like leather. But he doesn't mind. He expected worse. And it just goes on like that. It's like, But this is not necessarily a book that people would pick up and go, well that looks like you know what I mean, you might never look at this in the and say, This is this has anything to do with horror. This looks like, well, this is contemporary fiction, you know, I don't want that or I do want that or whatever. But it, it's very much at home in the darkness. And to me that I mean that is the that's the definition of horror, I think. That's why I've always thought that my novel Kink was absolutely a horror novel because It's so much about, and that is about cruelty, too. Uh, Darkness and how comfortable are you in existing or operating in the darkness? And it isn't even necessarily about fear as much as it is about, you know, the dark, the transgression, the going places. Like, all of a sudden, you know, it gets dark in the room. All of a sudden, something happens that you didn't expect or something, you know, the phone call comes that you didn't expect. And now everything is fucked. Wow. What are you going to do? That's elastic. That can encompass so many books and so many writers. Mm -hmm. I mean, that. And we have to have some kind of genre the same way that we don't have all the food in the grocery store like all under a sign that says food and then it would take you like forever to find your rice krispies but fuck it so you have to have some kind of meaningful way to categorize stuff but it can be such an uh, offense that you know will scare people away or People think they're, you know, ooh, I don't read horror because, you know, what Yeah, you do. I bet you if I went in your house, I bet you I'd find some. But you mm-hmm. don't you know, you don't think of it that way. And you think of whatever that is it's like it's something that's weird or creepy or beneath you or It's usually like
1: guts and blood when people say I don't like horror. Well, that's one subgenre.
3: Right. Right. But they've never they've just like, oh, I don't like that and they never bother to to learn anymore so i know that's the that's the, the sad part about genre because it is used or sometimes it is even used within genre when people going oh that's not horror you know you guys come on everything that we do is fine everything yeah. everything if it's good work it's enriching what we all do that's period that's the end
1: absolutely
3: if it's Bre- bad, bad work
1: i agree brennan
0: yeah No, I just, I I really like that. Everything that we do is fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, I always kind of think of horror as, you know, less of a main dish and more of a spice, you know, you can sprinkle it on everything. Um, and, and, and you probably should, because it adds humanity, it adds conflict, it adds, you know, life is dark, let's face it, um it's it's not all sunshine and roses, and if it is, I want to know where you're living because I'm not fucking there. Um, it's it you know, it's a necessary component to good storytelling in small doses, at least small doses. So that's where I'm at with it.
3: And it's hard to trust anything that doesn't have that darkness because right? It's like, Okay, where are you living, right? Like you just said, what what world are you inhabiting that doesn't have that pain or that edge where you can just fall off? I mean, are you existing in some kind of I know I know some people want to go to to fiction or art or whatever for reassurance, but I don't see how you can be reassured without that darkness. I mean, it's not acknowledging that it even exists, right? You have no
1: reference point.
3: Right. And then you're, it's like when people try to protect their kids from everything, it's like you, that doesn't make them safe. That makes them less safe.
1: Super vulnerable.
3: Right. There, there is no way to actively, they're going to meet it somewhere. You better give them a way to meet it because you're not going to be there every minute. And I guarantee you that any kid on any playground has seen things happen that you don't know about mom and dad. And you better give them a way to meet that. And They've
0: all heard the F word.
3: <laughs> They've said it.
0: <laughs> you <laughs> know, and first I, I was going to say like the, even if you use fiction as an escape, which is totally legitimate, you should absolutely do that. I don't think it's possible without some sort of grounding. Um, and, you know, going back to that middle school story, you know, where where you put, you know, you wrote a book that was for young adults and you put the word fuck in it because it was appropriate to that situation to me. If I'm that age and I, or if I'm this age and I'm reading that and the uh, you know, the character goes ah, oh, poppycock Um You're all of a sudden you've lost me, you know, I, but, you know, the second (laughs) they have uh, a valid reaction and they react to a situation the way I would as a 13 year old, um, I can believe in the flying unicorn above or whatever the hell it is. um, As long as there's something to kind of tie me to my own life experience.
3: And to show me that, you know, as a writer, what it's like, and then I can trust you. Because otherwise I can't, right, and and that was one of my arguments, too. It's like, what what else would this kid have said? It's at a moment of high stress, something bad has happened to a friend of his. He feels like all the adults have let them down. And he's confronting one of these adults. I mean, right, he's not going to say, "Shucky Darns, fellow, you're <laughs> really, it's like, fuck you. Gee whiz. I know. Gosh, Janet, I mean, it, it makes no sense, and it's yeah. not, it's, it's so far removed that you might as well, you're so clearly been talking at someone, and I don't, I wouldn't do that. I don't want books to talk at me. I don't want films to talk at me. I, I'm i perfectly capable of making up my own mind, but you have to talk to, to me, not at me, and the young readers are all the same. It's rereading mm-hmm. Harriet the Spy which I did recently it's totally different reading it now because I can see things in Harriet that I couldn't when I was reading it as a kid and she is a real butt for parts of this book this kid is a butt but she's so real she's so real and as a kid I enjoyed her buddiness and as an adult I can understand it and I see where she's coming from but that's why that book has been alive for so long, because it's real, because you can look at it and see yourself in it. Even if even if you can't stand Harriet, you can still see that she's a real person. She feels real to you.
1: I like the movie. Uh, what was it the 90s? 96?
2: Harriet oh,
3: saw i I saw I couldn't bear it because I love the book. <laughs> I was afraid. That's like every Wuthering Heights movie sucks. There has never been a good one. There's one by Andrea Arnold that got the atmosphere right because so much of that book is about being outside, living outside, running around outside. I mean, at one point in the book, Kathy talks about herself and says she's half savage, Hardy, and free because they're outside running around. It's not about people sitting in a drawing room, right? (laughs) The Andrea Arnold one had the appropriate, you know, dirt and grit, and it felt it felt real again. It felt real, but then they opened their mouths and things.
1: <laughs> Trumpable. Things t- uh, Style. So, so that was our first reading, by the way. Uh, in the this is the eighty fourth recorded episode, and I liked it. It's good. So, Kathy, coaches reading that was awesome. So I uh, wanted to point that out. Um, Brennan, are we ready to do? What are you reading? Yeah, sure. Kathy, what are you reading right now? That you. You've already told us, I think, but if there's anything... I know,
3: I already, I already shot my watch. See? On. Um, <laughs> I, I love the Lindsay Lerman book. Um, I am loving Underland. It's really, This is a book that I read, and this is so cool because this is another thing. It's called The Song of Achilles, hmm. and apparently it was like a giant bestseller like five years ago or whatever. I had no idea it existed. I didn't know anything about it, okay? I somehow stumbled on... A twitter bot that was quoting from the book and it intrigued me and so i picked it up and i read it i get everything on interlibrary loan and if i really like it i'll buy it because i am getting to a point in my life where i have so many books i can't have any more books <laughs> but i love this book i never thought about achilles or his life or his heel or any of his problems i didn't care one way or another it's like i don't care and then I read this book, and the voice was so great. It's like, okay, I have to own this book because I love it so much. So, yeah, it's a subject I had no interest in until I cared passionately. Um, uh, what's another good example? I know it's in this room somewhere. Um, I saw the film last year. Uh, the Old Guard. There it is. This, if all these books fall down, I'm serious. you got to edit this out because this is like a house of cards here.
1: No problem. Uh,
3: this, I loved this book so much and I am not a fan of graphic novels and I'm not a fan of superhero stuff and I think I watched the movie we watched it um, it was another bad political day and I said alright what is this about it's about Shirley's Theron is going to kick somebody's ass alright I'm down for that let's watch her beat some people up because that's where I'm at today <laughs> and it was so good because it took the whole superhero idea, these people are, um, they they are not immortal, but they live a long time. And if they're wounded in any way, they heal up. So it isn't that they're not hurt and that they don't have, that's what is also great about this. It's not like bullets bounce off them. Bullets go in them. And then they heal from that. And then Mm. they get up and go on. But what the director did in the film was take that, whole superhero idea and make it about there was no wisecracking there was no it was about these people and you really were interested in them the the idea was there are these this group of people who go around like writing wrongs and stuff and one of them the oldest one is really sick of doing this because she's been writing wrongs for so many years and there's still so many wrongs and she's really over it and then they discover a new one like them and oh my gosh, what are we going to do about this? And we hmm. have to get her. And and I liked the film so much that I said, all right, I have to, to look at the book. I have to read it, even though I can't stand graphic novels. I have a problem with them because of the word balloons and stuff and the separation of the words and the pictures is hard for me because it takes me out of the, the story. Hmm. But I was willing to forego that it's like okay i know you have this prejudice but you're going to read this anyway and then it blew my prejudice away it's like no you're just wrong and this is great and now you learned a whole different way to read good for you now you can read this as a narrative and it doesn't bother you that there word balloons so yeah that was my other what was i reading and there apparently there will be a sequel to the film which i am very excited about and i'm going to watch the hell out of it
1: i gotta check that out that sounds awesome it's
3: really good and it has lots of Lots of great, it's a good, really good
1: action movie. I want to get more into the graphic novels, they, they always catch my eye. I just never, I've only read one, so I kind of want to up that. And you just convinced me to up that. So, Brennan, what are you reading? Um, Kathy, you
0: used the phrase, uh, Whistling Past the Graveyard earlier. <laughs> um, I, I'm reading a book called Whistling Past the Graveyard by Lex H. Lex H Jones. Uh, it's a short story collection and it's honestly I'm really loving it. It's it's one of those, you know, every once in a while you I feel like most short story collections, you know, there are some that really catch your eye and other stories in there where it's like, oh that was you know, that was fine. Um and you know, you 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 get through, you read twelve stories and you have fond memories of like eight of them. Um this one, everyone has you know something memorable it, it they're wow. just every story is so complete i can't think of a better way to put it like it could it, you know i haven't i haven't hit one story yet that couldn't be its own little universe um so i'm about 60 percent through and you know unless it takes a real nosedive at the end no it doesn't i'm loving it it's it's that's that's five stars for me um 'Cause that is really hard to find a collection where every single
3: piece works for you. Um, it is really hard. And and must be super well put together. Cause yeah, that's a tough thing to pull off.
0: He did a really good job, and I know Patrick mm-hmm. is a little more familiar with his uh writing than I am, but um I- I'm impressed. This is the first thing I've read by him.
1: Yeah, he's he's like one of the most polite human beings i've ever met it's like him and ramsey campbell they're both english so i guess i guess that's why i don't know speaking (laughs) Uh. of
0: english i'm also i'm about to start um a friend of the show janine pipe has a collection coming out beginning of may uh and i'm about to start that it's called twisted tainted tales um and i i like her she's she's got um she she's not afraid to throw the blood around. Um, she she puts together a really good fun read.
1: Really nice person too. Um, yeah. So I'm reading a classic for our Burning Minds, other along with the guy that runs Silver Shamrock Publishing, Kim McKinley, and a reviewer known as Well Red Beard, Kevin Witten. Uh, we're going to be doing the Shirley Jackson's probably most notorious work or one of them, The Haunting of Hill House. For first time I'm reading it, it's really good.
3: Oh, my God. This I'm so
1: going to make sure I read the collection with the lottery in it, too, uh, before we record. Because I, I keep hearing about it. i got to read that. Um, I don't know how you
0: missed that in high school. You must have been out that day. Man, I don't
1: think, <laughs> I don't think you can graduate without reading the lottery. <laughs> Come on. I told you in high school. Uh, that's when I stopped reading for, like, five years. Because I felt like an idiot. Because yeah. of all the stuff that they kept trying to make me read. Um, it, with the exception of two books Great Gatsby and Animal Farm I love those two books I'm also reading Ronald Kelly's uh, his first novel it was with Zebra Books in 91 Hindsight um, that's fun uh, just about a southern girl from Tennessee that has the gift slash curse of uh, seeing the future of uh, certain people and it's usually about death um, one more, Sina Palayo, a Latinx writer. She yes. just came out with uh, "Children of Chicago." I, I love her stuff. I got she sent me the poetry collection um, "Into the Forest and All the Way Through." Is that it?
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah I'm gonna start that probably tonight. Um, she's become one of my favorite writers. She's so good. I I said this on when we an episode last night. It'll be. Coming out uh, three days after your episode, of Kathy, with Clash Books founders uh, Liza and Christoph, but she's the only author I've ever compared to Thomas Harris. Probably because they're both journalists. Probably because they both were journalists covering true crime. But it's more than that. They are just oh my god, scene is so good. She's yeah. gonna she's gonna blow up. Like she's she's bound for great things.
3: Good. Yeah. So and she's super cool too. She's yeah. a cool person. I got to meet her at Stokercon. Um, whatever year that was, we live in the endless time now <laughs> in 2019 2019. Uh, yeah, that, it's been a
1: long few years. Well um, 2019
3: was that in, was that in England? No, it was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is frightening in its own way. <laughs> Sorry, you in- know it's true. So,
1: uh, where can people follow you?
3: Uh, they can follow me on Twitter, and they can find me on Facebook, and they can go to KathyKoja.com.
1: And I have to ask, uh, what what's on your corkboard screw behind you? Because, like, I I love everything that's going on.
3: Oh, lots of stuff. This is um, Dark Factory. That's the what people will see on the site. And all of this is all dark factory related. So it's all about seeing things differently. And that's, uh, can you see, you can't, can you see this? No, yes, no.
1: No, I can't
2: see.
3: There are posters from art that artists have already done that pertain to the book. And will be part of the site. Part of the—I'm not sure how much of this will be part of the book and how much will be part of the site, but yeah, it's all. Everything is Dark Factory related, so
1: very cool. I—not um, <laughs> to be rude, but I took a picture and just sent it to I just to Sina, and I said, "Do you have anything to tell Kathy?" And she said, "Tell her I absolutely love her, her work, and she's an inspiration. It means so much to me." So. Directly from Cena, I love it. I love when great people, never mind, add to that. Authors appreciate and love each other. It's so cool to see that.
3: It is cool, and it's it's a chance. She and I. I mean, this is another one of the gifts of of the genre, right? We would not have met if we would not have been at the doing this thing at the same time, and Mm -hmm. that. In fact, that's how I met. the the goddess of clash books right we were at
1: Liza yep
3: we were at StokerCon and we just started to talk I love what she's doing I love what they're doing and just without regard and it's when she talks about genre she's like all genres must be blown up and that that, <laughs> you know, that like, sounds like her that's <laughs> yeah no, it, like yeah no they're for jerks don't have them but she is She's really fearless and trusts her taste. And Christoph too, they trust what they're doing and they trust that by putting it out there. That's what I like about working with Meerkat, too, and Trisha Reeks is the same way. She is willing, she doesn't have any fences to say, oh, I won't do that or I won't do that. She trusts good work to be what it is and trusts herself to recognize it and put it out in the world. So i'm seeing so much of that energy in indie presses where i see when i look at the the big houses you know and i have worked for a lot of different publishers and have and have had mostly good experiences with all of them and but the more the large houses consolidate and get larger and larger i can't see how that is helpful to writers or readers it it's, it's making taller fences, right? It might make it a lot harder to get work out that is different, that is, you know, how is a Jean Cavallis type editor gonna function when she's part of, you know, this striation, layer upon layer upon layer that she has to push through something new. And I mean, it was hard enough for her to do it back in the day, mm. but she was able to make it happen. That's and, awesome.
1: Yeah, it's people like her that they're the unsung heroes. They're the type of people I want on this show too. I, I don't know who they are though. Most of the time, it's I gotta talk to people like you who mention them. And uh, man, I'm I wish I knew more behind the scenes people um, like Don Daria. We had him on. And I only knew of him because of how much praise he got from Brian Keene and other writers that I started talking with. Like, they make this actually happen. You need someone to do the technical side of things to make that author's work come in front of your eyes. Um,
3: Especially now when there's so much stuff. Yeah, so much. By stuff and you don't even... It it is like the supermarket of all the food. And you're like, I don't even... (laughs) It's like when I go to Home Depot, which I don't go to Home Depot anymore because they have political issues. But when I did, or when you go to any big store like that, and you're like, I just really wanted some paint, but now I'm being confronted with things like maybe I do need mildew resistant paint. I don't know. Is there mildew in there? Maybe I should get that. And then you're so you end up like confused and defeated, and you just leave. You don't buy any paint. You're like, all right, fuck it. I just won't paint. <laughs> I'm gonna do it do it you need you right if they if if you don't have someone curating your experience of a reader how are you you might not find the things right you might that's why a place like clash is so great or like meerkat because you can trust the people who are curating it you might not love every single thing they do but you would take a chance on any of it because you trust that their taste right you're like okay i know you and i know your taste and so i'll take a flyer at anything you show me
1: i was going to ask you about meerkat if you got anything to say for authors looking for um for home Uh, that's a pretty damn good reason
3: oh yeah i have been so impressed with trisha's bravery and i mean a project like dark factory is more than just saying okay, we're going to publish this book and like slap a cover on it and send it into the world. It has been so collaborative and I am so happy with everything that we've done together. I was happy with, from the minute I saw this cover for Velocities and she's like, okay, here are our ideas. I'm like, yeah, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. And there, we talked, I did the keynote for Small Fair earlier this year and Trisha. And I did a QA and a together, and she talked about wanting to have the author involved in things because not only is it your book, you are supposed to have a vision for what you're doing, and that should carry through in, you know, the way the book looks. And and that isn't true. I mean, for a lot of writers, you just, you find out what the cover is when you, here's, you know, you get it for marketing and go, hey, here's your cover. And you're like, ooh, okay. Oh hmm. It sure does have my name on it. All right. Okay. <laughs> Too late to do anything now. I guess I just have to like it. And yeah, and that has not been that opposite experience with Trisha. So We haven't even
1: we've been talking for two hours and we haven't even touched on velocity. So is there anything that you want?
3: Is it two hours? All right. See we're yeah, it's late. I don't usually bet, I'm usually in bed by now. <laughs> oh,
1: we are, we, you know what, we're wrapping up, but it, I, I, I'm so sorry. Is there anything that you want to talk about for Velocities for, because this is your brand new book.
3: Yeah, this is my second short fiction collection. And I was, it is hard. It's really hard to put together a collection that hangs together. Like you were saying about with as graveyard to have something that is cohesive where every story is like in dialogue with the story, that's hard to do. So I try to, I try to think of a way to make, to give people a way through the book or offer a way through the book and say, okay, if you don't, maybe you want to experience the stories as a unit, or maybe you want to read some of them, or maybe you just want to read one and put it down. So I broke it up into sections. One is called at home. One is downtown. One is on the way. One is over there. And the last one is inside and gave people that kind of thematic way through because the stories are all over the place. There are horror stories in here. There are. Uh, there's historical fiction. There's things that have no name (laughs) the stories that have no name but uh, magic realism although I don't like that term but they're all over so I wanted to give people a way through it that might make and it with any short fiction I don't I never sit down and read the whole thing it's like you read a couple stories and then you let them kind of sit and say oh what did I think about that or or maybe go back and read it again did I get all of that did I get everything that was there and it had been a long time since um my first collection came out a long time ago and i hadn't done another one and i thought okay well maybe and people ask you know are you ever gonna and i have a lot of i have a lot of short fiction someday there should be like all of them collected but not today that's <laughs> tonight. but it was fun to look at the the stories in the first book and then the stories that was called extremities and this is velocities and there's one story that is in both books and a couple of reviewers pointed it out with a certain amount of irritation and said basically bitch you have had two short fiction collections out in 20 years and you are literally you are repeating a story what even are you doing but i did it on purpose because well, of course I did on purpose it was, an apple shed. where? how did that get in there? <laughs> but it read so differently to me looking at it again, because I went back and looked at what was in extremities and tried to figure out, okay, how did we put this together? And this, the story is called Padidu, and it's the last story in the book. And it read so differently to me reading it now from reading it then that I knew that I had to put it in there because it was like a totally different story. The same way, in some ways, The Cypher is a totally different book for me. Mm. Looking at it now as opposed to, and I have my own ideas about The Cypher. And I never share them because I don't want people to think they have any more weight than anybody else's because they don't. <laughs> but when the writer says, what well, was really, you know, then people are like, hmm, maybe it's, you know, it's not about that. That's what's it's about to me. But that doesn't have anything to do with anything. I can't believe we talked for two hours. We went probably like that
1: well there's a lot more we could cover so we'd love you to come back sometime uh brennan before i jump into wrapping up with final thoughts is there anything no actually why, why don't i ask you when we have final thoughts sorry um I just one. <laughs> sorry my brain's starting to get a little fizzled fizzled right now from uh you know talking late at night um silly This is coming out of my mouth. So for those that are interested in looking at merchandise with my ugly mug on a T-shirt, coffee mug, a few other things, go to DeadHeadspace.com. There is a store tab. Check it out. If you like it, great. If not, well, don't tell me.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Final thoughts, Kathy. Oh, this is super fun. This is super fun. And... I think this is, is the perfect illustration of what a conversation is supposed to be. This is a we went all over the place and yet we kept coming back to the same ideas and the same exploration. And I mean that is what good fiction is supposed to do. That's what a good conversation is. You start here and you go everywhere. And and I did not knock this shelf over. I'm not kidding. This is a very <laughs> volatile. Shelf here with, and why I have glass stuff on the top shelf is really beyond me. That is an accident waiting to happen. So we managed to get through two hours, and I pulled out a bunch of books and I wrecked nothing. So I'm super proud of that.
1: Audio listeners, you'll have to listen. You'll have to watch the uh, video version to see her shelf. It's um, there's a lot of books on it. Writing <laughs> <laughs> final thoughts, sir. And there's no edits when uh,
0: all the books. Toppled and fell on poor <laughs> Kathy. So, you know, I I agree, I agree with you. Um, and it's it's weird agreeing with you about the you know conversational nature because it just sounds like I'm touting our show. But you're <laughs> right. It, it's you know this was a great conversation. You know, we I came prepared with notes with questions, and you can see my book is now closed because you know that was the areas we went and the the rabbit holes we dove down were so interesting that i wasn't about to interrupt them to you know throw whatever i wrote down you know hours or days ago um i loved it and we would love to have you back yeah
3: anytime
1: yeah absolutely that's that's fantastic um i want to get kathy on a round table i don't know about what i don't know with who but like me and Brennan tried doing a few each year i don't know what's going to be on but i'm definitely gonna hit you up for that um so so my final thoughts are kathy made me i'm saying this to brian really anyone else and you too kathy's uh i put out a call I, i said fuck it maybe some people will reply that i'm not even thinking of i put out a call at the beginning of season the end of season one for people that may have interest in being a guest on our podcast and kathy was one of them, and I, I texted Brennan like, holy shit, Kathy Kojic just replied? What's wrong with her? What Does she know? <laughs> Is she desperate? No, but seriously, you made me determine that I'm, I'm going to keep doing that with at the end of every season. Me and Brennan plan to go for years, so I'm going to keep trying it. I got you uh, interested, a guy named Shane Hawk, and a few others that uh, if I didn't make that call, would we have ever talked? I, I don't know. So I got to thank you for that. That's pretty awesome. And this has been a fantastic conversation.
3: And you should always, I, I think that there, I think we do sometimes censor like, oh, I'm not going to ask that person. I do it. It's like, I would like, oh, I'm not going to say anything to her because ooh, I don't know her. Or like, I'll just stalk her on Twitter and look at her stuff. It, <laughs> i There are people that I'm afraid to say anything to because of that. Because it's like, they don't want to hear from me. Why would I, you know, I'm not going to. But it's almost, I can't think of a time when I have approached someone honestly with honest, you know, I would like you to be part of this or I admire your work or whatever. People respond. Mm -hmm. You know, unless maybe I just have not approached any, you know, big dicks or anything. (laughs) (laughs) but. Because you're having you're having that honest connection again. you something you did really meant something to me. And even if they don't respond, you honestly told. How could anybody be offended by that? Right? It's mm-hmm. like I really like what you're doing. And yeah, that's otherwise why are we any? Why is anyone doing anything if we don't want to have a connection? Exactly. Well, why bother?
1: It's called social media. You know, be social. Um. <laughs> really. <laughs> I sent a tweet. This is public, so uh, you know this isn't news now. It might be for some people, but I sent a tweet to Peter Straub saying, "Hey, we would love to have you on, you know, fans and so forth." And he replied, and we just confirmed in an email that he's going to be on in July. And I'm like, "Holy fuck! That's the- <laughs> like, how is this happening?" I I am a firm believer that you should in a polite way, in a non-pain-in-the-ass way, you can tag people and talk to them. There's been, there's been very little flack from my practice of doing that, but the people that have given their flack, I just see them as someone taking a shot at someone that's actually doing something. I don't think they're doing too much. Um, and isn't that always the case? The, the one being creative usually gets attacked by someone that's like maybe not so happy with himself. <laughs>
3: Or they, people are afraid to take a chance too, and they're afraid. And it is, and people can be savage too on social media, and people can
2: oh,
3: yeah. <laughs> each in like, ooh, in terrifying ways. So, in some ways, I think it makes us more. I am braver now than I have ever been because I'm older now too, and so much doesn't bother me anymore. Or you. You see, not with more, things don't matter as much, but the things that do matter, matter a lot. But a mm. lot of stuff just doesn't matter. It's like, you know, what, there was a, a great saying, and I have no idea where this proverb comes from, but it's, the dogs bark, but the caravan moves on. <laughs> just move on. they, the haters going to hate. And yeah, you're when you're authentically reaching out to someone, and if they don't respond, then it's their loss. Or maybe they can't, or they're busy, or they they have problems, or who knows what. But, an honest, to be honestly invited to be part of something, you know, why wouldn't you respond?
1: Yeah, no, uh, you know what? One of my favorite authors is Clyde Barker. That dude's not easy to get in touch with. I got I've gone nowhere. <laughs> Um, but you know, I would kick myself in the ass if I said uh, if I didn't do anything. If you didn't try, never yes. say you don't know. That's true. I'm gonna keep trying. Um, But I've been just so enthralled with what you're so fucking smart, Kathy.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I get extra points because it's late for me, man. I should be asleep by now, so I get so many extra points for being upright and awake at this time and coherent. So. I appreciate all the points. It. Good work.
1: Yeah. I, I appreciate <laughs> it so much. Um, next episode is only in a few days. It'll be on Thursday with the folks that we have mentioned a few times, Liza Cantoral and Christoph Paul. Um, when I first asked Liza how, because I never pronounced her name out loud before I was like, how do you pronounce it? Brennan, please tell you are going to do a better job. It's, it's, it's Liza and it's, it's not that hard. And you know,
0: if you you know because you were on the phone with her uh, the other night that she would probably kick your ass by now for how many times you've gotten it wrong, she'd have no no problem. Wait, what have I been saying?
1: You've been saying Liza for the last. Oh like, no, hour. this is my you Oh my god, it's Liza. Oh, she's gonna kill me. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> Chris and nice Penn, knowing you. She could kill me. So, whatever. Uh, not the first lady that pissed you off because I'm an <laughs> idiot. Her, her husband, Kristoff, is what I was leading at. Oh, man, that's what I was going to say. Brennan, can you please retell that very quick comment that he said? Kristoff, when he was trying to tell me how to pronounce his wife's name.
0: I don't know which one you're going for.
1: He was doing the impersonation of Tommy, whatever his last name is. The uh, actor with the door, the room. Sorry, oh, man. yeah, yeah. All right, it doesn't fucking matter, dude. It's like... <laughs> What's in there so you can catch that episode next thursday thank you for i want to make sure you had some editing to do i'm not going to edit that out look dude when people eventually meet me at a con mm-hmm. i'm not going to make myself sound smarter because they're going to be like this guy's a fucking idiot in person <laughs> kathy you're amazing we can't wait to talk to you again bye velocities through meerkat press sorry go ahead
3: No. Thank you for having me. This was so fun. I can't believe that we talked for this. It literally went by in a second. And so, to no, for having me. And yes, everyone should buy all the good books and read them. And they should read them out loud to each other, too. That was something I was going to talk about. We did, and we'll do it next time, about reading out loud. I will do my dramatic reading of Dr. Seuss for you.
1: Oh, my God. love
3: it. Yes. <laughs> it's going to be sweet. It's going to be
1: sweet. I can't wait. Okay. Alright. Have a good one and everyone you have a lot of choices with podcasts. Thank you for picking us.
3: You are now in Deadhead space. The floor in here is lava, and he can't eat in here because it's like a foot from where I should leave the room is really what he wants. Just leave the room, shut it down, leave the room, go somewhere else. But barring that, there's food on the floor that he can't eat. So just so everyone knows what those sad cries will be.
0: Well, to be fair, he's a cat, so it is his room.
3: Oh, yeah. Oh, it's his house. (laughs) (laughs) Everything is it's his house and I'm his bitch. So I'm not I'm not complaining.
1: That's like me with my kid and wife. I'm their bitch. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's easier. Just get it's like whatever. You you can't you you lose any any right to your own life anyway when you adopt a cat. It's like this is just how it's gonna be now. So there's no <laughs> point in why struggle. It's a waste of time. <laughs> and energy and effort.